This morning we are moving to chapter 3 of the book of Acts. As you know, we've been going through uh, the book of Acts. That's our fall series. And one of the ways you might be aware of that Grace does our sermon structure is we, we preach what's called expositorily. That is, we take books of the Bible and go through them, which is great for me because I don't have to be creative every week about what to preach. I just have to take what's before me and preach it, and that's glorious, and I love that because I'm challenged before you. Um, this passage is a great challenging passage, a, a, a passage of healing, and we love the fact that we can come to the text and know that Jesus has this passage in mind for us this morning. So we've been looking at Acts. We spent three weeks on chapter 2. Remember, Acts chapter 2 is Pentecost, where the Holy Spirit came with power. Uh, the church grew from 120 to 3,000. And then um, the last thing we looked at last week was the, the, the way the community began to fellowship with one another and share resources and pray and meals and, and the Lord's Supper and the teaching of the apostles. And in verse 43 of chapter 2, it says, And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And so this next piece we're going to look at, chapter 3, verses 1 to 2, really shows the continuity between Jesus' ministry of healing and the ministry of the church, which continues to heal. So let's look now at chapter 3 of Acts. We'll look at verses 1 to 10 this morning. And I want to do one quick thing right off the bat. This is an aside. And it's an important one that I know I won't get to later. So I'm going to say it now. Oftentimes, when you come to the New Testament church, there's a sense of like, yeah, let's shed all vestiges of the old way and create new gatherings and new church. It's amazing, especially when you talk about the Holy Spirit. Let's just do it our way. Let's be creative. That's great. We want to be creative. But it's fascinating, verse 1, if you notice what Peter and John are doing, they're going up to the temple to pray. They're continuing their Jewish faith as Christians, as apostles. So just, a, just kind of an aside to show that Jesus fulfills the Old Testament. And, and we now, as the modern church, are continuing that story along. So just an aside, tuck that away. It's a great little conversation to have some other time. Now let's look at the passage that we have before us. Now Peter and John were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour. And a man, lame from birth, was being carried, whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple, that is called the beautiful gate, to ask alms of, the, of those entering the temple. Seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, he asked to receive alms. And Peter directed his gaze at him, as did John, and said, Look at us. And he fixed his attention on them, expecting to receive something from them. But Peter said, I have no silver and gold, but what I do have I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And he took him by the right hand and raised him up. And immediately his feet and ankles were made strong. And leaping up, he stood and began to walk and entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. And all the people saw him walking and praising God. And recognized him as the one who sat at the beautiful gate of the temple, asking for alms. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. This is the word of the Lord. Jesus, you love to heal. 
That is what you do. You rule and you reign from heaven. And Father, we are on earth and we know of the disease and we know of the brokenness in our own world, in our own lives, in our midst, and we desire healing. And so, Father, this sort of passage can, can be very difficult. I pray, Holy Spirit, you would open our eyes of belief to understand what you would have us know from this teaching for this morning. In your name we pray. Amen. Um, a lot of times, people who take antibiotics, I've heard this, Dr. Smalley can verify it, they don't finish all their antibiotics, right? Once you start feeling better, you're like, I don't need to finish 12 days of these gigantic pills. And so you put it in the cupboard. You're supposed to finish your antibiotics. Anyone not finishing them? Raise your hand. I'm going to stay away from you because super bugs are developing in you. Now, antibiotics are cheap. And when you don't need them, they're just in the cupboard, right? Kind of like Bibles. You go to the hotel, you open the thing. Oh, there's a Gideon Bible and there's Bibles everywhere. But when you need an antibiotic, right, when you really have the illness for which the antibiotic matches, you crave it. You take it exactly like you're supposed to, right? You, you go the entire course. And so when we come to Scripture, oftentimes we'll read through the Bible, and if we're not careful, it can just seem like this thing over there that goes on this shelf. But what we want to see this morning is Jesus wants to heal you. And if you believe that he wants to heal you, and that's a question mark, what does that mean? How's that going to work? But that's the question I want to place before you. Do you realize you're born into this world needing healing, and Jesus is the one that can heal you? This scripture brings to us a Savior who says, I'm here to help the sick. So that's what we're going to look at this morning. The question I want to be burning through your mind is, am I sick, and do I need healing? That's the question that we're going to answer this morning. And, and this is a weird way I'm going to do it. Because this passage is a short story, a very clear narrative, I just want to take the, the story and say, I'm going to kind of do two things at once. Okay, One, we're going to dig into the story, but we're going to do it by examining how do we read the Bible? Like, how do we even read a story like this? So we're going to look at how this story fits into the whole Bible. That's the process number one. We're then going to go through how to identify the characters and where we fit. We're going to then, point three is going to be pay attention to certain words and themes. And then four, we're going to make an interpretation. Okay? Y'all ready for that? So if nothing else, hopefully you'll know how to read your Bible better and love your antibiotics. But hopefully this passage will come to life in the, in the process. So how does this story fit in to the whole Bible? That's an important question. One of the mistakes we can make if we just turn to a passage like this and read it and try to apply it before we ask that question is we come up with false answers. We'll come up with wrong conclusions. So what's happening in this story? Remember, um, first of all, Acts chapter 2, the, the 120, Jesus, well, let's start with Acts 1. Jesus ascends to heaven. He's promised his disciples and the apostles, uh, the 120 gathered, that he will send his spirit. He ascends. The Spirit comes at Pentecost, and so chapter 2 begins with this wind and fire, and all of the people who are in town for this festival, this Pentecost festival, which means 50 days after Passover, this harvest, they come out into the area, the gathering near the temple, where Peter then preaches a sermon that they can understand. That's what happens in chapter 2. It ends with 3,000 coming to, to, to the roles and, and joining the church that day. Chapter 3 follows a very similar outline. It starts with this healing, 
at the end of our verse, you saw that everyone was amazed, and it leads to a gathering of people being unsure what's going on, and Peter preaches his second sermon. We'll look at that next week. Only this time, in chapter 3, though we know more people do join the church and join the roles, it leads to persecution. So the purpose of this passage then, primarily from a large-scale perspective, is to understand that that Jesus is healing this lame person as a means to reach the lost, as a means to carry his kingdom forward. Does that make sense? Um, We have to see it in the context of the entire Bible. All of the Old Testament begins with the fall in the garden. We have the story of Israel and, 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 and how God called Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. Eventually we have Moses. We have this whole cascade of people leading to the prophets, prophesying that one day the prophesied uh, king will come in the line of David. That's chapter 2. And Jesus is that king. But now he's in heaven. What do we do? And the promise is, well, Jesus is going to continue to heal. So when we come to our passage, what we find is Peter and John are basically representing Jesus, and he's healing in the very same way he heals in the Gospels. So that's sort of the point. Um, He's continuing to heal. Now, that's important. How you read the Bible is going to be based on how you see each passage. Here's an example. Uh, Take David and Goliath this morning in the hallway. If you walk down the hallway, you saw this drawing Marsha Carnes did a beautiful job on. Tom hung the thing. It's like a nine-foot-tall drawing of Goliath. So I said, are you teaching David and Goliath? She's like, yeah. Actually, there may have been a joke in there somewhere, but we went with yeah. Um, I said, I'm talking about David and Goliath too. Here's what I want to tell you about David and Goliath. Most of the time, when you hear the story of David and Goliath, what are you told? Slay your giants. Be like David. That's a great application. But when you look at the story of David and Goliath in the context where it falls, David is a picture of Jesus. He's the king after God's own heart. Even in Acts 2, we know Jesus is the one promised to David's throne. So what you have is Israel. You have the enemy Goliath. And you have David. And you have to ask yourself, who are you in that story? And most American young, you know, I'm David. It's like, no, you're Israel. Like, we're sitting there scared to death. And we hear the yelling enemy this giant named Goliath, and we don't know what to do, and we're quivering in our shoes, and up walks Jesus, right? I'm going to take care of you. And he walks out, and he slays that giant. And you go, I can do it, and we run after him, and the Philistines run. That's the beautiful story of David and Goliath. So when we come to this story, we need to figure out who we are before we can really understand it. So that's going to bring us to our second point. Let's look at the characters and try to figure out who we are. Are you Peter and John? Okay, that's the first characters we see. Peter and John went up to the temple to pray. Is that who I'm supposed to relate to? Certainly, certainly we will find that as we understand the gospel, we instead of the people who brought us the message are to go out and bring the message. But when we come to this passage, I don't think so. I think Peter and John, to me, feel a lot more like Jesus. Like they're the ones that are representing Jesus as apostles, And we have to find out who we are. Who are the other characters in this story? The other characters are really two options. The person who's lame, who has not had the ability to walk from this birth, or there's an unspoken group in there that come out at the very, very end. And those are the people who give alms. 
And that's who I think you all relate to. I'm going to just call, I'm going to call us all out. That's who we relate to in this passage, falsely, right? We do. We read this passage, and what do you immediately think of? Well, I'm thankful I'm not lame. And then we think of people we know in our lives who are ill, who need healing, right? So don't you do that immediately when you read this passage? So I'm not Peter and John, and I'm not the people who need healing, the people that have it really bad in our world. So I'm probably, if I really had to press on myself, I guess I'm the people going to the temple to pray. Now, I don't think any of us would come to that conclusion, but that's the trap we find ourselves in when we read this passage, right? So what, if, what would it look like if you were giving alms? That just means you're passing by people, and here's, the, here's what's going on. Um, I th- it reads like this is a daily event for this person, but if this is still Pentecost, then probably the three pilgr- pilgrimages a year are your festive days. You know, we have five home games at OSU every year. So you drive on Hall of Fame every day, but five weeks out of the year, you kind of need to avoid that area because the food trucks come in. Um, every, it becomes a, a completely different event. And that would be the day or, this, or the time period for someone like this person, his friends, to bring him to the temple because it was a very normal thing to give alms. That wasn't begging in our modern sense. It was sort of known as we go in and do this blessing and, and celebrate the harvest, let's give a little bit back. And this is how we'll do it. Here's a person that will give them some money. So is that who we're relating with? Because we're kind of in a bind when you come to this passage. A bind, right? A bind. I don't, I'm not the sick person, right? And I'm certainly not John and Peter, so where am I? Where are you? Who do you identify with? Right? Jesus tells the famous story of the, or Luke tells the famous story of chapter 5 of his gospel, volume 1 of the man, the paralytic, being lowered through the, 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 the ceiling, and Jesus does what? Forgives his sins. Right? And everyone's shocked. Like, what? Who are you to forgive sins? And they're having this theological debate. And then he says, oh, I see. You don't believe I have that kind of power? Well, let me do something far easier, and it will blow your mind. Get up and walk. And the man stands up, and now their minds are blown, because he can walk. Healing and forgiveness of sins go hand in hand. Jesus heals you physically, but he wants to heal you spiritually more because that is what carries off into the future. And so we come to this beggar, and I think we are supposed to identify with him the most, primarily because Jesus says, I came for the sick. I came for those in need. And I remember reading those passages as a younger Christian going, dang it, I was this close to needing Jesus. You know, like, I mean, I'm not bad, but I'm not good. I'm sort of in between. Forgive me, Lord. This lame person from birth is laying there because he recognizes that this is his lot in life. This is as good as it gets. And that culture, it wasn't just that he couldn't walk, is that he, he couldn't even go into the temple. He couldn't carry a job. If you look at city streets and the way cities were structured then, and you looked at the lack of laws and rules and care for, the, for those that were handicapped, what, a, what, a, what an existence he had. And so he just was re- relegated to the sidelines. Right? And I think many of us find ourselves in that role. Do you see yourself as the beggar? Is that an encouragement? How do you see yourself? How do you view yourself? 
So I want to spend a few moments kind of processing that a little bit, and then we'll see the beauty of this passage. Um, what are ways that we are actually lame? Like if this is true, what are some ways that you've been made lame? So some of the characteristics are, one, I think there's a secrecy, right? If we actually have sin, if we actually have any element of brokenness in us, oftentimes we hide. So secrecy. So I begin to ask yourself, what are your secrets? What things do you know about yourself that you would not say a word about in this congregation to anybody? What about hiding? Where are you hiding? Right? Uh, another big word that we, we talk about coming out of hiding and, and walking out of shame because of what Jesus has done is vulnerability. Like, what would that look like to be vulnerable? What would vulnerability look like to actually allow people to know you well? I'm going to go a little bit deeper. Who named you? Like, what is your name? Right? We all were given names. Right? He's the smart one. She's the funny one. He's the goofy one. What was your name growing up? What is your name now? Where do you find that people want to kind of hold you? Where are you locked, you know? I'm not really that spiritual. I'm never going to be one that really gets the Bible. Or, do you see what I mean? Like, where are you just accepting brokenness? And so I want to go back to my first question. Where do you have a spiritual condition that's been developing your entire life, and you've just decided, I'm not going to be healed. This is just who I am. I'm always going to be this way. And then we find the Enneagram number that says, aha, see? There's my thing, and I'm not, I love the Enneagram. I need to learn it better. I'm not going to make any eye contact with many of you because you love the Enneagram. I love the Enneagram. Myers-Briggs, whatever. We find something. I'm an introvert. I'm an extrovert. We find some label that says, this is just who I am. I'm never going to be healed. Jesus is here to heal you. Where are you lame? I, I want you to know that physical healing, we're going to talk about that a little bit, but spiritual healing is infinitely more important. In fact, the fact that we have medicine and science to the degree we have it is because of spiritual healing and people's longing to care for the sick and the downtrodden and devoting their lives to research. What happens? How does research happen? Someone has a condition, their hearts are broken, and they start raising money for research. And then science and people who have a heart for that condition begin to study it, and, and healing happens from that research. So healing can happen in so many ways, but I think it starts spiritually in our hearts. So what I want to do now is look at the third point. What are some key words or themes in this passage that really help us to go, okay, I can now begin to see what I'm supposed to learn from the passage. Point number one, why it's in the Bible, Jesus heals He's continuing to heal. This is leading toward our final healing then. Point two would be, who am I in the story? I really hope you'll begin to at least process with me. I think we all should identify with the lame man. But point number three, what are some key repeated words in this story that maybe begin to pop? There's a song, by the way. Does anyone know the song, Peter and John Went to Pray? Anyone know that? Raise your hand if you know that song. I might ask you to sing it. All the moms know that song. I'm not going to sing it, but I went, I went through it in my brain a few times, and there's some words in this passage missing from the song. So the song just describes the text. And if you were to tell this story to other people, you would say, Peter and John went up to the temple to pray. They met a lame man on the way. Well, that's, I don't even know how it goes after that. Like, like silver and gold have I none. Well, I don't even know the song. 
But the words that aren't there matter, and that's what I want to talk about. There's a, a great movie by Peter Jackson. It's a documentary on World War I. Only watch this if you're over the age of 35 and you're a guy and you like war flicks because it's extremely, it's, it's just footage from World War I. But it's, I'm just warning you, don't watch it unless you like war movies. Okay. Peter Jackson applies color and it, it, amazing new technology. So it starts off black and white and it really fast paced. My, one of my kids like, did they move faster back then? But then all this, it just goes into this normal motion and it's, it's beautiful. But as Coleman and I were sitting there watching, he said, I'm gonna, it doesn't matter, I'm going to call you up. He's like, Dad, why is everyone looking at the camera? And it's true. Like, the only footage they had when you start to watch is the footage of everything, not war, and they're just kind of waving at the camera, and then they show the, the results of war. Like, the next day, the cameraman walks out onto the battlefield, and they show those shots. They don't really show battle shots because the technology wasn't there. But here's the point. It's interesting that they were so unused to cameras. Right? Nowadays, everyone's got a phone up. You know, you're pro I'm probably being videoed right now. There's a camera aimed at me. It's not recording. Like, we're all being videoed at all times. But in World War I, it was so strange that no matter what situation they're about to head into, when the camera showed up, they were just transfixed. And the whole movie is like a group of men just kind of staring and smoking and trying to act cool for the camera. And yet they were about to walk into their deaths. Okay, let's look at our passage. Verse 3. Seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, he asked to receive alms. Seeing. No big deal. But you don't need to say that, right? You could just say, there's Peter. You know, Peter and John came to the temple. He asked them for alms. Seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple. And Peter, verse 4, directed his gaze. Right? The Greek word there, it, it's this intent stare at something or someone. Then the, the second part of that verse, 3 4. And as he did to receive, um, sorry, and he fixed his attention. No, I'm back. I'm, I jumped ahead. Peter directed his gaze at him, as did John, and said, and then Peter says, Look at us. Look at us. Lift your eyes up. See, if you were lame, and your basic way of income was to collect money, you probably weren't looking at people very often. You probably weren't really proud of yourself. You probably weren't saying, hey, guess what I do for a living? You were just yelling and maybe looking just enough to know where you wanted to direct your words, but you did not want to be seen. And yet, Peter says, look at me. And Peter fixes his gaze on them, on this man. And in verse 5, and he fixed his attention on them, expecting to receive something. I think that's a really important thing to understand. Peter and John, representatives of Jesus, came to this person and probably for the first time in his life looked at him and said, look at us, and looked intently at them. I remember hearing a story, um, you know, you study like mom, moms and babies and looking and the need to be seen there's a, there's a study that's apparently been repeated quite a bit, and I've heard you can find it on YouTube. I don't, I don't choose to find it. But they'll do a study every now and then with a mom, and she's attuned to her infant, and they show the interaction with the infant. And then they have the mom do something different. This time they come back into the room, and the mom ignores the infant. 
And the infant's doing the thing it normally does to try to get mom's attention. And the mom, for maybe three minutes, just a little bit of time, doesn't do her normal looking. And by the end of that time, the infant is beside him or herself, beginning to come just undone that the parent is not attuning. They've even done the same studies differently where they play the video of the parent and the child, and they, they just mix-match the time just a little bit so that it's not happening in normal sequence. And again, the infant is undone. Like, you were made for someone to look at you, right? And certainly, God has given us the gift of human beings to see us. But the ultimate gaze of God, the view of God, is from himself, right? That we long to look into his eyes. And Jesus, while he was on earth, looked into the eyes of people and cared for them. And they looked at him. And in his stead, as he is now in heaven, Peter and John, walking up to pray at the temple, hear someone yelling. They have no gold or silver, but they have something far better. They can look at him. They can offer him Jesus. They can give him eye contact. And I think that's an important beginning because it makes him excited about the possibilities of healing. Um, just to drive that home, point home again, in Isaiah 49, we are told, Can a woman forget her nursing child, that she should have no compassion on the son of her womb? Even these may forget, yet I, God, will not forget you. Behold, I have engraved you on the palms of my hands. Your walls are continually before me. Do you believe Jesus loves you and looks at you and wants to know you personally? Have you invited him into your story? Have you invited him into your particular life? Or are you hiding? And one of the ways we hide is by telling a false narrative, right? We tell the story from when we became a Christian. We tell the story from when we had it together. We forget that there's this entire picture from birth till now that has so many interwoven plots. And Jesus was there the entire time. And he sees you and where you need to be healed and says, I'm here to heal you. Do you believe that? By the way, the rest of the story, uh, he's healed. Now, do you notice when you read the story, he doesn't just stand up. Peter grabs his arm, right, and pulls him up. If you read the story, let's read it together. Uh, I have no silver and gold, but what I do have I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, a real man from a real place who just a few days before ascended and who just a few days before that was crucified and who just a few days before that was walking around and they knew him. Many of those people knew of him. Peter is saying in his name, rise and walk. And he takes him by the right hand and he raises him up. And then it says, and then immediately his feet and ankles were made strong. Like, can you imagine he's like, what is the feeling of being dragged to your feet by this person you don't know about another person you've barely heard of? Like, what do you think he felt? I don't, this isn't realistic. This is too much of an expectation. You're going too far. Thank you for looking at me. He stands up. And as he does it, by faith, his ankles and his feet are healed. And he leaps. 
and probably my favorite part of the passage, is he doesn't just leap. You know, we know of the story of the nine lepers who don't thank Jesus and the one that returns. We know of many people, there's a story in John where he heals the man and the man seems to be complicit in his arrest, goes into the temple and tells the Pharisees, like, he's the guy that did it. This man goes into the temple praising God and leaping and praising God. He goes into the place of worship. He became part of the worshiping community. It's a very ironic scene, by the way, because um, this is harvest. Like, everybody there is kind of there because of harvest. Like, it's been a great year. God's done more than we could have ever asked or imagined. What is that guy doing? The one that was lame, who just five minutes ago, I gave him some alms. Doesn't he know his place? And now he's leaping and praising God. It's harvest. It's healing. Okay, last thing. What's our interpretation? How do we, how do, we do the interpretation? Do you want to be healed? Here's the bind we're in. Here's the problem we have. I want to be healed, but I also don't want to be duped. So I'll craft a narrative of healing that is safe, that says, okay, I want to be healed, but maybe I'll always be, you know, down here on this, on this sidewalk. Do we really believe the prayer that heaven is coming to earth, that Jesus is pouring in the first fruits, that Jesus can heal physically and spiritually? I don't know how, I mean, as I preach this sermon, obviously we have people in our midst who have illnesses that many times we just say, Lord, we know the science. I don't know what to do. And I would say, I believe the gospel frees us to hope for healing. It frees us to hope that even today healing can happen, but it also gives us the security that if it doesn't happen, it's still going to happen. That's the most amazing thing about the gospel is it's both and. Jesus, our Savior, is going and he's in the garden and he prays for the cup. To, if, if possible, can the cup pass? But if not, thy will be done. The gospel frees us for both. Are we, do we feel the freedom to say, Lord, my marriage, Lord, my temperament, I'm kind of not nice, or I'm kind of scared, I have anxiety, I have depression, or Lord, our community, or our politics, or my son, Lord, will you heal? You are a God who heals, and yet we hold on to the fact that our true healing has already begun because the Holy Spirit has been poured out, and we are going to heaven where we will all dance and leap and praise Jesus with the rest of our lives. I want us to hold that in tandem, and this is an emotional moment, so I'm gonna use a very silly illustration that meant something to me this morning, so here we go. King Supers in Colorado. Anyone know Colorado's King Supers? Colorado's a beautiful town, beautiful area. I'm sorry, Fort Collins, Colorado. And King Supers is a grocery store, and you go in, and there's all your food. What do you want, not want around your food? Bugs right? King Supers keeps its door open. Like it's this gigantic, it's as big as like this wall and it's just open. And you walk through and I'm like, how come there's not flies and gnats and bugs all over the food? Because it's the best of both worlds. The door's open, it's fresh air and there's no bugs, right? And it's because as you pass through that door, there's like, it's not even that noticeable, but there's a downdraft, Right? There's like a force. So evil can't get through that force. 
So you get to have best of both worlds. See, what we do is we say, I want my food over here and I want pleasure over here. Pragmatic here, fun here. And the gospel says, no, no. When you pass through the blood of Christ, you get both. You get to have the hope of healing, the longing for redemption now, but you also have the realization that you have to do the obvious things right now to take care of the problems in your midst. Right, so we, we can operate with that hope. Does that make sense? It's not easy. But Jesus is healing you. And for all of us in this room, my, my application would be this. How do we not pass by and go, oh, this man has, has ankles. How do we realize I'm that man? Like David, right, with Nathan. How do we get to the place where we realize I need healing? Will you join me in coming to that place? Come out of hiding privately in prayer and fellowship with one another in a journal, in a small group, in Sunday school, in Bible study, maybe a blog, maybe a online, I don't know. Where do you want to come to the place where you say, I'm going to be honest, I need healing and Jesus is my only hope. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you have sent your son to seek and save the lost, of which we are the most. If Paul can say that, why can't we? Lord, our sin today, though maybe outwardly and practically far or less filled with neon lights, is still nevertheless a rebellion against you. And Lord, the harm that has been done in our own lives that we have ignored or somehow shoved it to the background or to the epilogue somewhere. Father, all of these things you will heal. We know, Lord, in heaven, when we see you face to face fully, but you have promised when you sent your Holy Spirit into our hearts and into our midst that the first fruits of that healing have begun. And every Sunday we pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And so we beg you, we, we claim your promises. And Lord, that makes us feel vulnerable because we want to hope, but we don't want to be disappointed. And yet when we really come to your gospel, there's no way to be disappointed because Jesus, you yourself prayed a prayer of a cup to be removed, but you took it on so that we would not have to. So in that sense, we've already crossed into the other side. The blood has covered us. We are free. We are free to hope and free to experience your glory even now. Amen.